Isaiah 42, verse 1. God says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations, or goyim, the Gentiles. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the islands will wait expectantly for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. Holy Father, as we look at Jesus this morning, Jesus as taught about historically in the New Testament, Jesus as prophesied in the Hebrew Scriptures, I pray that our our vision would be broader. We would see more, Lord, of You. More, Jesus, of how You think and how You act and how You move and, and more of Your love. And, and that by seeing more of You, Lord Jesus, we might be willing and, and enabled to give more of ourselves to You. To allow Your Spirit to inhabit more of who we are. To be empowered further by Your Spirit to more acts of kindness and service and ministry in this world until you come. And I pray you would show us that this morning. And bless this time in your word, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like you to keep your finger there and turn over to the strangest action, I believe, of Jesus in all of the New Testament, John chapter 13. This had to me one of the most bizarre moments for the apostles in all the three plus years that they spent with Jesus. And they saw some bizarre things. Make no mistake about it. It's not every day you see someone walking on the water. You know, not every day you see someone do so much of the, so many of the things that Jesus did. And yet, on this night, as the apostles were all gathered there around the table on that Thursday night, they experienced, I think, the weirdest thing Jesus ever did. And again, John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that His hour had come, that He would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray Him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. Now, what I love about John is that he gives us the mind of Christ. We get to hear what Christ was thinking. We get to hear what he knew. And so there on that Thursday night at the Passover meal, we know all of these things that Jesus knew. He knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. He knew that he had come forth from God, that he was going back to God, 
He knew His hour had come. And knowing all these things, He does this weird thing. Now, I want to ask you, if you knew this about yourself and your situation, if you knew what Jesus knew in this moment, what would you do? Jesus, knowing all these things, wrapped a towel around His waist and did the unthinkable. Verse 4, He got up from supper and laid aside His garments and taking a towel, He girded Himself. And then He poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which He was girded. Jesus, knowing all these things, washed the dirty, stinky, sweaty, toe-jammed, corn-encrusted feet. Middle Eastern, first century feet. Sandaled feet, not even protected by shoes and socks, of the apostles. Weird. Strange. That's bizarre. He even washed the feet of the man who would betray him a few minutes later. You see, Judas was still in the room during the foot washing that Jesus performed for the apostles. And it wasn't a religious experience. This was not a known thing to be done in church services, one person to another. Did you wash your feet this morning? Good, okay, then I will wash your feet as a service to you, as long as they're already clean. No. This is the kind of thing that the servant, the low servant of the household, was required to do as the guests would come in. To wash the feet. And it's such a bizarre contrast because Jesus knew all these things. Why did He do it? Why did He stoop to such a lowly, menial place of foot-washing service? And the answer, John already gave us. Because He knew who He was. Even before you get further down to the passage and find out that Jesus is giving them an example that they should do this one to another, the reality is Jesus did this because He knew who He was. He understood about Himself that His time had come. He knew everything was in His hands. He knew He had come forth from God and that He was going back to God. He knew all of these things. In other words, gang, listen, He was able to serve without any need for validation. He was able to serve the apostles without any concern whatsoever for appreciation or even compensation. His service was purely out of who He was, pure service, needing nothing, requiring nothing in return. Jesus said in Luke twenty-two twenty-seven, For who is greater, the one who reclines or the one who serves? Jesus says, Is it not the one who reclines? But He says, I am among you as one who serves. And I begin with that because the principle here is absolutely huge for us as believers in Jesus Christ. It's amazing. The more we understand who we are in Jesus, the more we are enabled to serve. It's not a guilt trip. It's not because the need is there. Because the need doesn't dictate the action. The Spirit dictates the action. Well, what does that mean? It means your relationship with the Spirit of God dictates your behavior. Tells you when you are to act, how you are to act. And the more we understand who we are in Jesus, the more we're enabled to serve simply for the sake of serving and for no other reason. Because that's what He did. Down in verse 12 of chapter 13, it says, Now when He had washed their feet and taken His garments and reclined at the table again, He said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call Me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. 
If then the Lord and the teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. So again, I come back to this game. The best way for us to learn what it means to be servants is not to look at ourselves, not to practice our service, not to consider how we might better serve the body. The best way to become a servant is to look at Jesus. Because the more I look at Him, the more I want to serve, and the more service becomes a natural part of who I am. Jesus is the perfect servant of God. By the way, did you notice back in verses 4 and 5, did you notice how many actions of Jesus are described there? Watch this. Go back to verse 4. He got up from supper. He laid aside his garments. He took a towel. He girded himself. He poured water into the basin. He began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Seven actions that John specifically states there. Now, I don't think that's coincidental. I think it's a little more obvious in the Greek because you see immediately you see seven verbs that are being used all in a row for what Jesus is doing. If you read this in the English, you might say it's kind of redundant. He got up, he laid beside his garments, taking a towel, he girded himself, poured the water, began to wash his feet and wipe them. Okay, we get it. He washed their feet. But John is being specific. Led by the Spirit of God, he gives seven verbs here. Why? <laughs> seven is that biblical number of completion. What is this showing us? Gang, Jesus is the complete servant of God. And in fact, John said right before that having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I'm going to completely love you. I'm going to complete this relationship. What is the most complete relationship? When one person serves another. That's when you know there's true love going on. The acts of service that Cheryl appreciates so much, when that flows naturally out of me toward her, she knows. It's just because I love her. Jesus is the complete servant of the Lord. No wonder God said, Behold my servant. Behold my servant. First two words out here in Isaiah 42. God says, look at my servant. And that's a command, by the way. Look at my servant. Behold him. And beginning with Isaiah 42, the prophet now, inspired by the Spirit of Christ, pens five servant songs. Five servant songs between here and the end of the book of Isaiah. We're going to look at all five of them on Sunday mornings. Today will be the first. Five servant songs. I mentioned on Wednesday night, five is the number in the Bible of grace. And so five times the prophet sings of the servant, or literally the Lord sings of the servant. Let me tell you ahead of time what we're going to do. And where you can find these servant songs, if you'd like to be reading ahead and looking at these passages, you might want to jot these down. Servant song number one that we'll look at today, Jesus who serves, Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 7. Servant song number two, we'll look at Jesus who saves. Did I say saves? I meant Jesus who serves is the first one today. The next one, Jesus who saves, the servant who saves. Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 7. Servant song number three, we'll talk about Jesus who sustains. Isaiah chapter 50, verses 1 through 11. Servant song number four, Jesus or the servant who suffers. Isaiah 52, verse 13, all the way through chapter 53. And finally, the last servant song, servant song number five, Jesus who is sent. Isaiah 63, verses 
or 61, verses 1 through 3. So Jesus who serves, who saves, who sustains, who suffers, and who is sent. And we're going to be looking at those over the next several weeks. Now, if you missed the midweek study this week, I need to bring you up to speed. With these servant songs, there's been not a little controversy among scholars, both Jewish and Christian, as to who God is referring to when He says, My servant. There are those today, and especially today, because we have so many liberal-minded critics out there of the Bible, so many who say, My servant is Israel. My servant is a people. It's a generic. God is not talking about Messiah. He's not talking about Jesus. He's talking about a, a people. Israel. And they base that on some things. In fact, if you look back in chapter 42 or look ahead to verse 19 of chapter 42, the Lord says, Who is blind but my servant, or so deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is so blind as he that is at peace with me, or so blind as the servant of the Lord? You've seen many things, but you do not observe them. Your ears are open, but none hears. So here we're talking about a servant that's blind, not bringing the message, not observant of the things of the Lord. And you say, well, he says, behold, my servant at the beginning of chapter 42, and now he says, my servant there. So it must just be the same servant. The reality is that sometimes we see the servant being a person, Messiah. Other times we see the servant being a people, Israel. It's not that the servant is schizophrenic, okay? The truth is, in Isaiah, there are two servants. One is a person, Jesus, Messiah. And the other is a people, Israel. How do you tell the difference? Well, the New Testament writers are very clear about it. They're they're certain enough, and they inform us. They quote from each one of the five servant songs that we're going to look at. The New Testament writers quote from these to say, Jesus fulfilled this. This is Jesus. Interestingly, the New Testament writers never quote from the other four servant songs that talk about Israel. They never use those to describe Jesus. Only the five that we're going to look at. So they understood. It was clear to them. And if you read the songs, the distinction is pretty obvious. It's pretty obvious when we're talking about the faithful servant, as we talked about midweek, versus the fickle servant, which is more picturesque of of Israel. But you might ask the question, why does God call both Jesus and Israel my servants? Why does He use that same terminology? Why Why not just be very distinct and clear? Why use the same phrase for both? And this is an absolutely important uh, point to get. There is an intimacy between Jesus and Israel that God doesn't want us to forget about, that He would not have us miss. Jesus is a Jew Himself. He is a Jew personally, and He personally identifies with the Jewish people. Now, Jesus is also the perfect intermediary for the Jewish people. So note that. He personally identifies with the Jewish people, and He's the perfect intermediary for the Jewish people. Therefore, God calls Jesus my servant, and He calls Israel my servant. And Delich, um, from Kyle and Delich, the Bible commentators, he describes it as a triangle. Now again, I'm going over what we talked about here, but the base of the triangle, if you think of it this way, the base of the triangle would be Israel. And the central part of the triangle, then, would be the spiritual remnant, the faithful of Israel. But the apex of the triangle would be the perfect mediator of salvation, that is, Messiah Himself. Being a Jew, Jesus is the ideal Jew. 
He is the perfect Jew. And He had to be. As the faithful servant, He had to be the perfect Jew to be able to save the fickle servant, the rest of Israel, not to mention the rest of us as well, grafted into Israel. So you see the significance of that, that Jesus is called my servant in the same way that Israel, Israel's my servant too, but Israel needs some help. And so I am sending into Israel and through Israel the perfect servant, Jesus Christ, who is the perfect mediator, who intercedes and who gives Israel, and again, us by inclusion, the opportunity to be saved. He didn't just come to save fickle Israel, He came to save fickle you and fickle me. So He's the perfect servant. And again, the best way I know to understand who we are in Him is to look at who He is Himself. And Isaiah provides that for us. Isaiah chapter 42, let's look again at this. Verse 1, Behold my servant. Look at my servant. Whom I uphold. My chosen one in whom my soul delights. Now right off the bat, you should see Jesus there. Because Jesus has a few things to note, a few things to jot down if you'd like to. Jesus has, number one, the stamp of approval. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, stamp of the Father's approval. The first thing God says about His servant is He upholds Him and He delights in Him. This is the one in whom you might remember, I am well pleased, the Lord says. In essence, he starts off the first of the servant songs by saying, I'm getting behind this one. I'm throwing all my sovereign support behind his rule. And though further down in verse 8, he'll say, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. I'm not going to give my glory to another, but I will to my servant. Because he's really not another. Because in truth, Jesus as the servant of the Lord is the Lord. But He has the Father's stamp of approval. The Father approves the Son, upholding Him as, again, the chosen one in whom His soul delights. Luke chapter 3, verse 21 tells us, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while He was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon Him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, You are My beloved Son. And you can almost hear Him saying, Behold My servant. He says, with you I am well pleased. The Greek word well pleased is eudokeo. I wish we all spoke Greek. It would be a lot of fun. Hey, eudokeo. I'm going to say that. Next time I see you, Spencer, I'm going to go, eudokeo. I'm well pleased with you. It means to take pleasure in or to delight in someone. And the Father delights, is well pleased in the servant, His Son. At another time, Luke tells us, remember, Jesus went up on a high mountain. I believe it was Mount Hermon in the north of Israel. It's my personal belief. And he went up there with Peter and James and John, and on the mountain, suddenly, Peter and James and John, they get a little sleepy, they lie down and take a nap. They often do. (laughs) And Jesus, while they're napping, suddenly, and they're asleep at this time, Luke makes it clear, that suddenly he becomes transformed, transfigured. His clothes, his face become like whitest lightning, flashing lightning, only not, you know, it's not like Jesus was a strobe light, he's just this pure, bright, amazing white light. And there appear with him on the mountain Moses and Elijah, and they're talking with Jesus. What are they talking about? The crucifixion. 
talking about the end of his life that last week, talking about where he's going to be and how it's going to be, and I believe encouraging and, and, and building up Jesus. And this is all happening, gang, not for Peter, James, and John's sake. They're asleep. This is happening for Jesus' sake. But Peter wakes up. Reverend his eyes. And the first thing he blurts out of his mouth is, Lord, it's really good that we're here. We should build three tabernacles. One for Moses, and one for Elijah, and of course, one for you. And a voice booms out of heaven. Luke says, Peter didn't know what he was saying. <laughs> Luke 9.35, the voice said, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. How does the servant song begin? Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights, or with whom I am well pleased. The beloved son, this chosen one, the servant of the Lord, is the one written about in Isaiah. Jesus had the stamp of the Father's approval. Secondly, note this, it's interesting, Jesus has the Spirit by anointing. The next line in verse 1 says, I have put my Spirit... Upon him. I've put my spirit upon him. Isaiah would write the same thing about the Messiah in that earlier verse. You recall Isaiah 11, verse 2. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and strength, of knowledge, and of the fear of the Lord. And if you didn't hear that, that teaching on Isaiah 11, verse 2, go back and listen to it because it connects here in a very interesting way. Here in Isaiah 42, once again, God says, I have put my spirit upon him. The stem of Jesse in in Isaiah 11, 1 and 2, and the servant of Isaiah 42 are the same one, the same Messiah, both talking about Jesus. But notice the language here. And don't miss this. He doesn't just have God's spirit with him. You know, last week we talked about, I am the first and with the last. I'm going to be with you, he says. This doesn't say, I will have my spirit with him, or even in him. He says, I have put my spirit upon him. Why does he say that? In fact, if Jesus is God, as Rick, you keep trying to tell us that he is, why does the spirit of God descend upon him at his baptism? If he's already God, wouldn't he already have the spirit? Doesn't that make sense? Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Paul opens a window to understand this. He says, Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Kanuo in the Greek, he emptied himself, he set aside, laid aside, taking the form of a bond servant. Behold my servant. You see, the servant is willing to do whatever the Father says, without question, because he loves the Father. In the same way, I'm willing to do whatever Jesus says, because I just love Jesus. Behold my servant, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. What does that mean? That Jesus ceased to be God? No. It means that he set aside his power and his glory. He emptied himself of those things that would make birth and life growing up on earth a lot easier. Jesus, as a five-year-old God, it would have been a whole lot easier. Now, now, don't misunderstand me. Jesus absolutely and clearly is God from conception forward. The Bible says He's conceived by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the nature and the character of Jesus is that of the Holy Spirit. He is God. 
From conception on, He is born the God-man. But this one who is God throughout all of his childhood comes all the way up to roughly 30 years of age, comes out to John the Baptist and says, hey, let's, let's baptize me. And John the Baptist says, no, you should baptize me. And Jesus says, no, it's, it's uh, fitting that we should do this to fulfill all righteousness. He says, all right, I'll baptize you. He does it. And then the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus. And some people have really messed this thought up in saying, well, it wasn't until that point that God actually came into the human body of Jesus. And then at the crucifixion, God left the human body of Jesus. That's not how it works. He's always been God. He will always be God. But in those first 30 years, gang, He set aside that glory and power. I'm going to leave this so that I can do the work of my Father so that I can become a bond servant. So still innately God, at His baptism, the Spirit came upon Him. In that moment... Jesus was anointed to serve. Why? The seal of anointing gang is absolutely critical. For Jesus to fully function as the servant of God, that he would need to be during that time, that three years or so of his ministry, he needed first to set aside his glory, but he would need what he set aside. He would need that power again, the power of his anointing. Why not just leave it with Him? Why not just be born with it? And keep it through your childhood. And when you're about to skin your knee, oh, hover just above the ground. You know? When you're about to fly over the handlebars, land on your feet. (laughs) Why not have the power all the way up? Why set it aside and then have this power restored as the Spirit comes upon Him in baptism. Why do it that way? I believe, gang, that we might understand that it is the Holy Spirit who gives the power to serve. That you and I need that same coming upon of the Holy Spirit to truly serve the Lord. So Jesus, who was no less God, now becomes empowered by the very power He set aside before He came to this world. When the Holy Spirit comes upon Him, He showed us that the ability to be a servant of God would not and cannot be a man-generated thing. And this is a problem a lot of times for Christians. This is why people burn out. This is why people get exhausted or bitter or frustrated. This is why relationships bust apart in church settings because people are serving out of the flesh. Because we're serving from a carnal place rather than by the power of the Spirit of God upon us. We serve empowered by Him. We need His Spirit upon us. Otherwise, the serving we do could be a good thing, may not be a God thing. And there's a very great distinction. A lot of good things people do in the world. A lot of good people who don't know Jesus at all, who serve and do good things, but they are not necessarily the things of God. We need His Spirit to know the difference. Now, I want to pursue this a little further because I, I keep getting questions about the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit and, and what, what does this all mean and, and especially for our fellowship. Listen, in the New Testament, there are three prepositions that describe the relationship of the Holy Spirit and the follower of Jesus. Three unique prepositions that are very clear in how the Spirit works with us and in us. And Jesus used two of them to describe this in John chapter 14, John 14, 16, he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, Parakletos, 
that He may be with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him because He abides with you and in you. Two of the prepositions right there. God says, Jesus says, I want to send you my Spirit, and my Spirit is going to be both with you and in you. The Greek word para means with. Parakletos, one who comes alongside, one who is with. Okay, So para is the preposition with. The Holy Spirit will be with you. What a great promise. It means you're never alone. It means in your darkest hour, in your most difficult struggles, in your greatest fears, you in that moment know, I may be all alone in the world, and yet the Holy Spirit is with me. Para, I will be with you, he says. The second word there is he says, I will be in you, which is an even more marvelous promise, because not only does he accompany me and walk alongside, but he indwells me. He's in me. And the Greek word for that, the preposition, is in. Spelled E-N. Okay, Epsilon, uh, what is the N? I forget. Anyway, E-N. So that's how you spell that one. But there's a third preposition that describes how the Spirit works with us in our lives, and it is the Greek word epi. And epi means upon. Upon. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now we've talked about this game. John chapter 20 tells us they already had the Spirit. Jesus breathed on the apostles and said, Receive my Spirit. And in that moment, and from that moment forward, I believe the Gospel is clear that the Holy Spirit was in them and with them, but not yet upon them. That wouldn't happen until Pentecost. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus says this is going to happen. Ten days later it did. In an amazing way. And there was power. And there was an enabling to serve unlike anything the apostles had ever experienced. Unlike anything the world had ever seen. When the Holy Spirit came upon them. Let me give you a better explanation of all this. In my own words, Chuck Smith put it this way. In his book, Living Water, and if you haven't read Living Water, it is the best book, best biblical uh, treatise or view of the Holy Spirit that I've ever read. He just goes verse by verse and does an excellent job teaching on this. Chuck Smith says, If I should place an empty glass next to a pitcher of water, the pitcher full of water would be para. It would be with the glass. right? If I start pouring the water from the pitcher into the glass, the water is now in. The Greek preposition in. In the glass. right? And it begins to fill up. Now, too often, gang, believers stop right there. And that's a problem. That's why we lack the power to serve that we've been called to serve with. As we stop right there, we say, I want the Spirit with me, and I want the Spirit in me, but He begins to fill me up, and I say, that's good, that's enough. When? You ever play that game as, as kids, you know? My brother and I would do it all the time. Say when, and we'd be pouring the milk, and if the person wasn't paying attention and didn't say the word when, we'd just keep pouring until it spilled all over the table and we'd have to clean it up, you know? He didn't say when! <laughs> the problem sometimes, gang, in, in Christianity, is Christians say when far too quickly. We start to be filled with all the... When! That's enough. You don't want to get weird, you know? When! Stop there. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be completely immersed... That baptism of the Holy Spirit, you know, that, could, that means the Holy Spirit might start coming out of me and whew, that could be weird. So let's not go there. When? <laughs> you know, when it comes to living and walking in the Spirit of the Lord, when is not what we say, it's more. 
Just keep pouring, Lord. And Chuck Smith says this going on. He says, as the glass fills with water, it begins to overflow. Now the water is epi. Now it's a pond. Now it's overflowing the outside of the glass. So many Christians have the Spirit bottled up inside. The Spirit does not flow forth from their life, and they seem to be nominal Christians, to hang around but never to overflow. Yet it is God's desire, God's purpose, and God's will that our lives overflow with the Holy Spirit. That, gang, is the anointing. That is the, we serve from the overflow. If you are serving from anything other than the overflow of God's Spirit in your life, God's Spirit upon you, you're going to burn out. You're going to run out, as it were. You're going to find yourself serving in your own power and your own strength and your own energy. Getting the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which, you know, I know freaks people out, that phrase sometimes. Jesus is the one who used it. And John the Baptist used it. But it simply means the immersion of the Holy Spirit. It means the Holy Spirit is upon me. The Holy Spirit has gotten on me. How did the Holy Spirit get on me? He overflowed out of me. And I like that description because you know what that says? It says the person who is has the Holy Spirit with them and in them is no less loved by God, is no less righteous, is no less Christian than someone who says, I've been baptized by the Holy Spirit. See, it's not a distinction between who is a Christian and who is not. Who's in the family and who is not. Who's better and who's not quite so good. That's not it at all. The overflow of the Holy Spirit just means I now have a power to serve, and not from myself, but from the Lord. And I've asked you this question before, so I'll ask again, does that sound like something that you don't want? Does that sound like a frightening thing, or a wild or out of control thing? No. The overflow of the Holy Spirit without the anointing. Again, I may do good things, but I'm not necessarily doing the things of God. Without the overflow of the Spirit upon me, I will pour out, but I'm going to end up dry and thirsty. Don't say when. Just say more. Keep pouring, Lord. Keep pouring. You know what happens if the Lord continues to pour out into your life and you're receiving that overflow and that continual pouring of His Holy Spirit? Guess what? You never run out. You never burn out because you're constantly overflowing. Just picture that pitcher. And the great thing about God's pitcher is it's bottomless. It just keeps pouring. And they have one of those at Knott's Berry Farm. When I was a kid growing up in Anaheim, California, they had this thing called the Haunted Shack, and you go in there, and they had this this pitcher pouring into a glass, and it never stopped. I don't know how they did that. (laughs) They had a trick. It's no trick with God. His spirit is just... There's so much of His spirit to give, He just never stops. Don't say when... Say more. Jesus had the anointing, the Holy Spirit, upon him, as well as in him and with him. Continuing on. Are we out of verse 1 yet? No, we're not. Okay. He will bring forth justice to the nations, or again, the Gentiles. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. Jesus has, number three, the seal of appointment here. In other words, he's not elected to office, which is real good. (laughs) He's not voted in. There's no campaigning where Christ is concerned. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved, not Democrat, not Republican, not Libertarian, not Tea Party, nobody else. There's one name. Jesus Christ is the only one. And God appointed that from before the foundations of the world. And that means, gang, that Jesus, and it's described here, is never engaged in politics. 
He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. He doesn't stand up and say, I'm Jesus Christ and I approve this message. (laughs) He didn't need the help of any super PACs, you know? (laughs) No multi-million dollar fundraisers. No campaigning, no tooting his own horn or touting his own accomplishments, which is exactly what happens every political season, and it just gets sickening. Well, I've done this. Well, I've done that. Well, I don't want you to know what I did here, but I'm going to talk about this instead. It's just like, ah. And Jesus didn't do that. Do you notice in his ministry, walk through the Gospels, read the life of Christ, he doesn't promote himself. Well, how does he get the word out? He just served. He just loved people. He taught them about about himself. He taught about the scriptures. And he never tooted his own horn. Who would have believed Jesus if he had played politics anyway? I mean, what would his campaign slogan be? I came to die. (laughs) Mark him off the list. I don't think I want to vote for that. It makes no sense. And truly, Jesus comes to lead through service and self-sacrifice. And I'll tell you what, Washington, D.C. could use a little of that. You know, service and self-sacrifice. Wouldn't that be a refreshing change on the national political scene? Watch how this works. Turn over to the book of Matthew, chapter 12, where Matthew will quote directly from Isaiah 42, but I want you to see the context. Watch how this works. Rick, didn't we read this passage on Wednesday? Yes, we did, and thank you for reminding me. Matthew chapter 12, verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, that is that the Pharisees were going to, or conspiring him to, as to how they might kill him, destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. <clears throat> now watch this. Many followed him, and he healed them all. And he warned them not to tell who he was. He didn't raise his voice in the streets. He didn't cry out. He didn't pull out a bullhorn and say, Hey, check this out. This guy's walking. Walking. (laughs) I did that. (laughs) He's talking. Here, you're talking to the bullhorn. Yes, Jesus healed me. Yes, he, he, I did that. No. He healed them and he said, Shh. Don't talk about this. Just, Just go be healed. Matthew says this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I'll put my spirit upon him. And he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Now that doesn't mean they didn't hear his voice through teaching. It just means he wasn't shouting it out. A battered reed he will not break off, a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. And I love that Matthew pulls out Gentiles there from nations and recognizes when he says the nations, he's talking about the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people as well. But did you note the results here? Jesus didn't have to shout out through a bullhorn, a vote for Jesus is a vote for change. (laughs) He didn't talk about hope, he gave hope. And how, again, how did Jesus do it? He served. He did it by serving. Remember this. The anointed 
uh, servant is also, Psalm 2 tells us, the anointed king. You might want to read Psalm 2, talking about Messiah, my anointed one, my anointed king. I have set him on Mount Zion. He is on his throne. He comes to be the king. But gang, listen, note this. It wasn't by proofs of power and might that he brought justice to the Gentiles. It was by serving. And we still don't get this today. The kingdom of God does not come through acts of power or greatness or miracles to call attention to ourselves. The kingdom comes quietly through self-sacrifice. You want to build the kingdom? You want to be involved in in kingdom-building ministry? Serve. And do it quietly. Love people for no response whatsoever. Don't go waving flags or carrying signs. You just quietly go about the self-sacrificial service that Jesus calls you to. Jesus said in John 18.36, My kingdom is not of this world. He's not just talking about where His kingdom is from, that is, heavenly. He's also talking about the nature of His kingdom. My kingdom is not like this. My kingdom is not what you expect from the nations, from the people of the world. I don't function that way. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting. So I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. This isn't how we do things in heaven. So why do we keep trying to make the kingdom of this realm? To politic our way in the world through campaigns and shouting loudly in the street. The best advertisement for the kingdom of God is service. Just serve. Jesus' people, as Jesus was appointed by the Father to serve, and Glenn read the passage this morning at during communion, not knowing I was going to share this, you are appointed by Him to serve. Jesus said, John 15, 16, You did not choose Me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in My name, He may give to you. So the servant, back in Isaiah 42 has the stamp of approval. He has the spirit of anointing, the seal of appointment, and number four, and note this. This is incredibly personal. Jesus has sensitivity to anguish. This marks a servant of the Lord. Sensitivity to anguish. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. Two of probably two of those well-known Hebrew Scripture metaphors in the Bible. You, I'm sure, heard this before. You know, a, a bruised reed, a dimly burning wick. The bruised reed. Isaiah takes these two metaphors to portray to help us understand how the servant deals with others, how the servant loves other people. A bruised reed. The word reed here speaks of a, a shaft of grain. A shaft or a stalk. It's, it's not necessarily in, uh, something well, like there were reeds around the Sea of Galilee, so he's pointing out the reeds. No, there were also reeds in the wheat fields. And the wheat, the stalk of the wheat, is also called a reed. And the word in the Hebrew is that word. And that reed, think about this, it is through the stalk that the water and the vital nutrients gets to the grain. So that the grain can grow and the grain then is produced flowers and is produced at the top of the reed. The problem is, what if the reed is bent? Now we need to understand something here. The Bible says a bruised reed. The word bruised in the Hebrew, ratsatz, 
means crushed or ruined. This isn't just a bruise here. This is something that has been rendered useless. Don't miss this. This same word is used to describe a contusion to a vital organ, or in other words, a death blow. (coughs) This reed has had a death blow. Once this has happened, there is no nutrition getting to the wheat. There is no fruits. Because the stalk is now dead, useless, it's worth nothing but being tossed out. It should be broken off. It should be chucked. Jesus won't do it. I had always heard this preached as someone who's having a hard time, a bruised reed. If you're a little hurt, Jesus is going to be tender with you. No, if you feel useless, Jesus will not discard you. If you feel like you're at the point in your life where I'm just done, I have nothing left to give, Jesus won't throw you out. The world will, not Jesus. The dimly burning wick, or in the New Testament translation, the smoldering wick. What's that a picture of? Think of a candle, and the wick is dimly burning because there's nothing left. It is about to go out. It's burned down, burned out, nothing left to produce produce warmth or light, and yet Jesus will not blow it out. He's not going to toss out the useless reed. He's not going to blow out the useless wick. Are you getting this? He takes tenderly the dead reed and restores it to living value. He takes the, the smoldering wick and He breathes His Spirit into it and it flames to new life. Man tosses out ruined, broken, useless lives. God redeems them. Let me give you three examples of this in the life of Jesus. Mark chapter 1, verse 40. A leper came to Jesus, beseeching Him and falling on His knees before Him. He said, if you're willing, you can make me clean and move with compassion. Watch this. Jesus stretched out His hand and touched Him and then said to Him, I am willing, be cleansed. Which means that for a few minutes there, a few moments, Jesus' hand was on the body of a leper before the leper was cleansed and healed. By the way, side note, after that, Jesus tells the leper, you need to go to the priest and and give the offering for having been healed as a leper. That would be the first time that Levitical law of cleansing for being healed from leprosy would ever happen. God put it in the book of Leviticus as a law. When you're healed from your leprosy, here's what you do. Well, no one had ever been healed save Nahum and the Syrian, but that's another story. All the way up until Jesus comes and He heals this leper and then He says, oh, by the way, you know, remember in the book of Leviticus there's that law? <laughs> you need to follow through now. Now that you are healed. Second story. A woman had a hemorrhage for 12 years, Mark chapter 5, verse 26, and had endured much at the hands of many physicians. It's been all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind Him and touched His cloak, for she thought, if I just touch His garments, I'll get well. And immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. The Gospels tell us Jesus realizes He'd been touched, though He's surrounded by people, because power went out from Him. Well, if power went out from Him, was He then out of power? No, He had the Spirit upon Him. Okay. <laughs> she touched him. She's healed. He turns around. He calls her daughter. Gang, we're talking about bruised reeds and smoldering wicks here. Third story in Luke chapter 7, verse 12. 
As he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. So she was his last hope for being cared for. And a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin. And the bearers came to a halt and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. (laughs) Did you hear about that happened in Egypt this last week? The guy died. They thought he died. They pronounced him dead. They took him home to wash him and prepare him for his funeral. And as they're washing him, they bring the doctor in. And he's checking him out. And he goes, you know what? He's awfully warm for someone who's been dead a couple of days. <laughs> and all of a sudden, and he sat up. And the funeral became rejoicing. You know? Can you imagine? I think before the rejoicing, I'd be running out of the house screaming, Wah! <laughs> Uncle Fred's alive! <laughs> And I already spent my inheritance now. So here's so here's Jesus, and he walks up, and he, and he and he touches. Gang, do you realize? And I give you these three examples on purpose. In the law, there were three unclean things that you could not touch, and if you did touch them, they kept you from going into the temple. Touching someone with leprosy, touching someone with an emission of blood, or touching someone dead. And Jesus touches all three. Why? Because when the world is done with you, Jesus is not. That's the heart of the servant. When you are over and through and beyond the end of your rope and absolutely useless and pathetic by all accounts of man, the tenderness of Jesus enters the picture. You see, the law was concerned with the transference of uncleanness onto a person who is clean. Grace offers the transference of cleanness onto a person who is unclean. That's why Jesus touched them. Why would Jesus touch a leper? Because Jesus was perfectly clean. And His cleanness, His righteousness was so great that to touch an unclean leper did not make Jesus unclean. It made the leper clean. A bruised reed, He will not break. A dimly burning wick he will not put out. In this transference of his cleanness into our cleanness that cleanses us, King, do you realize what happened? Our sin gets transferred to him. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5.21. So not only did Jesus transfer righteousness to us, He transferred sin from us onto Himself. And He bore it at the cross. Amazing. Back in Isaiah 42. Skip down to verse 5. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. Okay? You got it? You get who we're talking about here? (laughs) The great Creator God, God Almighty, established. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness, and you here is His servant. I will also hold you by the hand, and I'll watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people. Wednesday I mentioned Jesus fulfills the law. He is the covenant fulfilled. Okay, Matthew 5.17 Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. And He did, perfectly. 
a covenant to the people. As a light to the nations, Jesus said, John 8, 12, John 9, 5, I am the light of the world. The light comes in. If you're a dimly burning wick, don't worry about it. He's the light. And He'll restore you to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those who dwell in darkness from prison. And understand, these things, we can look at other examples of Jesus healing people who are blind. Well, what about bringing people out of prison? Gang, spiritual blindness and imprisonment are a direct result of sin. And this servant not only heals the physical diseases, but heals the spiritual disease of all people who will come to him, bringing spiritual sight and freedom from imprisonment, while he himself took these on himself. That is plunged into the darkness of death while transferring His righteousness to those of us who believe. So the light of the world heals the blind. So the servant of the Lord sets the captive free. And I'll just say this one more point on this. If you are bruised to the point of feeling useless, if you are smoldering, feeling like you've got little or nothing left to give, hear the words of Jesus who says, Come to Me. All who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Number five, fifth and final point, Jesus brings the surety of authority. The surety of authority. Continuing on in verse three, it says, He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened, or crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the islands will wait expectantly for his instruction. The word law there is instruction. And Jesus says, you know, Matthew 28, 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. But note this, he will not stop until everything has been accomplished. He does not get discouraged, which is so encouraging to me because I do. And for those of you who have been walking in your Christian life, walking, following Jesus and trying so hard, but you just get discouraged because you see the world, or you see what's happening, or perhaps even an area or a person that you're trying to bring to the Lord is just so discouraging because they're not listening. Listen, Jesus doesn't give up. He doesn't quit. He never stops. He keeps coming forward. He keeps coming at us. He keeps going until this earth is under the full authority of the King. He will not give up. The approved, anointed, appointed, even anguished servant king has all the authority vested in him as the son of the living God and he does not get discouraged. He never stops. Which means that until he comes, he's going to see you through. Whatever your circumstance of life is, he is going to see you through. Paul said in Philippians 1.6, I am confident of this very thing. That he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He'll perfect it. What does that mean? Sanctification. So you have redemption through the blood of Jesus. If you give your life to Christ today, immediate transfer of cleanliness. Immediate transfer of righteousness. You are immediately whole, saved, and clean. But he keeps washing feet. Remember what he said to the apostles on that Thursday night? comes up to Peter. Peter says, don't wash my feet, Lord. And Jesus says, hey, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part of me. Oh, okay, well then don't stop there. Wash my hands and my head. You got some shampoo. Let's do this thing. You know. And Jesus says, Peter, you're already clean. 
Okay, you'll understand this. You're already clean. All you need is your feet to be washed. And we've even talked about it in here. You don't get baptized again. You don't get saved again. You don't, you know, you just get sanctified. Our feet get dirty walking around in the sticky sin of the world. So our feet need some washing. Sanctification. But if you're in Jesus, you already have redemption. You're already clean. (laughs) He will perfect it, the good work, until the day of Christ Jesus. So he never gets bummed out. The servant of the Lord never gets discouraged. He loves his home right to the very end. Remember, as we said last week, he's both the first and with the last. His withness. Having loved his own, John 13.1, he loved them to the end. That Thursday night, as Jesus looked around at his men, he knew among them there were those who were bent and bruised. He knew among them, every one of them would feel as though they had blown it and were now useless just within a few hours. He knew some were barely flickering. But Jesus also knew what was about to happen and that was the greatest awakening in world history. And I'm not talking about the resurrection. I'm talking about some 50 days later when this ragtag band of disciples would would suddenly have the Spirit upon them and would move into lives of service unlike any that had ever been seen. And the same type of service that we see in the apostles of the first century, that is the kind of service that God is calling you to be empowered to do. Jesus says, you're impressed with what I'm doing here? Greater things than these you will do as servants of the Lord. So, He served them. He washed their feet as a preview of the sanctification that they would need and would receive Behold, my servants. Jesus, we behold you this morning in awe of your grace, of your humility, of your compassion, of your tenderness, amazed by your sensitivity. We recognize, Lord Jesus, your anointing by the Spirit of God and and why you did it the way you did. We recognize your appointment to the task of the servant of the Lord. And, Father, we recognize your authority in Jesus. And I just pray, Lord, that we might take on the very servant nature of Christ. I pray that your Spirit would be upon us in ways that we have never experienced, that we might serve in this world, ministering to the needs of one another in the body, proclaiming the name of Jesus and ministering to the bent and the broken and the bruised and the smoldering in the world. The same kind of compassion and tenderness and love that Jesus Himself showed us. And Lord, as we look at Jesus, may we learn to serve like Him in Jesus' name. Amen.